Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you brought me to the book of James this morning and reminded me that not many should become teachers. Those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I tremble at that, Father. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a mighty Savior and that we don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. And as we open our Bibles this morning, I pray that you might grant a special gift, a special pouring out of your Holy Spirit, that we would see what's, what's truly here, what's been here all along, and that you would help us to mine the riches of these verses. Lord Jesus, come and, and be the center of our attention this morning, and may we move from this place with our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was only three weeks ago that we began our Advent season study for 2014, and today we bring it to a close. I'm always surprised at how quickly Advent slips by. We've entitled the series, O Come, Let Us Adore Him. Uh, The title, of course, is borrowed from the beloved Christmas carol, O Come, All Ye Faithful. The song was actually originally written in Latin. It's several centuries old, and it only came over into English in 1841, which is a few hundred years after it had been written. But upon its first appearing, its first advent in English hymnals, it became widely and wildly popular. Um, I don't think you need a hymnal. If you know it, will you sing with me the first verse? O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. You sound good. Oh, come, let us adore him. So this Advent season, we have had the extraordinary pleasure and privilege to think through what that means. As a congregation, we have stepped into the very throne room of God as we have worked our way through John's vision of God and his worship in Revelation 4 and 5. Uh, As it were, over the past few weeks, we have been progressively unfolding an apocalyptic gospel tract. That's what this is. The first week of Advent, we learned from our study of Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, that God is worthy of our worship. 
but until we see him as he is, we will never savor him as he deserves. The second week of Advent brought us to Revelation 5, verses 1 to 5, where we discovered that no one in creation, no one in all of creation is worthy to explain, much less to execute the full counsel of God, except Jesus Christ. And that lobbed the ball over the plate for week three, where Seth wonderfully challenged us to place our trust in the only worthy Lamb of God. Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 to 10. So Revelation 4 to 5 is a, is a gospel tract. It's a wild one, I'll grant you that. But it's a gospel tract. In other words, it's a distilled, compact presentation of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the terms of salvation according to Scripture. And if you were in a pinch and all you had was Revelation 4 and 5, you would have enough. You would have more than enough to present the good news of the gospel to someone who stands in need of it this season. All the elements of a gospel presentation are there. God, man, Christ, response. Those are the essentials in any understanding or application of the gospel. The gospel includes the truth about God and the truth about us and the truth about Jesus and then finally the truth, the sincere response that each of us uh, owe him. The sincere response that God summons all people everywhere to. Nobody said it better than the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17 verses 30 to 31 where he proclaimed the times of ignorance God has overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead that of course is our Lord Jesus the risen lamb of Revelation 4 and 5 have you repented and placed your trust in the only worthy Lamb of God? Are you repenting this moment and placing your trust this moment in the only worthy Lamb of God? Plenty of people profess faith in Christ without ever actually possessing faith in Christ. How would you know that you were the real deal? I mean, how would you know that you were among the choir of the redeemed? What might a, a genuine gift of the assurance of your salvation be worth to you this Christmas? Would that be a worthy Christmas gift? Indeed it would. Welcome to the topic of week four of Advent season. Uh, here's the big idea this morning, and I've just tweaked it slightly from the way that it appears on your outline. Here's the big idea. Worship is the worthiest response in the world to the worth of Jesus Christ. So I'm replacing the words good news with the word worth. I, it's true the other way too. I just think it trips off the tongue a little better this way the more I thought about it. Worship is the worthiest response in the world to the worth of Jesus Christ. Now two points today. One of them is drawn directly from today's text and the other one is drawn from a broader survey of the New Testament. Both points, however, are vitally connected to that word that we have seen running like a thread through all four weeks of Advent, and that word is worthy. Worthy. So first point today, worship 
is the worthiest response in the world to the worth of Jesus Christ. So this Advent season, come, let us adore him. For he alone is worthy. Come, let us adore him, for he alone is worthy. Uh, The author of the epistle to the Hebrews says of the Lord Jesus in Hebrews 1, 3 and 4, after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's a striking statement. The greatness of Jesus Christ outstrips the glory of the greatest inhabitants in heaven, the highest-ranking dwellers in heaven, angels. Angels are beings which, if seen by our human eyes, we would be strongly tempted to worship. John was. We've seen this already in our series, but this is worth pointing out. And it's not only here on the front end of this vision, but rather it's in the final chapter of Holy Scripture that John is tempted to commit idolatry. Uh, John, who reminds his readers in 1 John 5, 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. This same John reports in Revelation 22, 8 and 9, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. This begins to position us to appreciate what John writes of what he saw of the angels in Revelation 5, 11 and 12. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the four living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Can you hear him? You can almost hear him, can't you? How many did John see? Verse 11 speaks of myriads. A myriad was the highest known number in the Greco-Roman world. This is 10,000. That's a myriad. And the Bible doesn't say here that John saw a myriad of angels. It says he saw myriads of myriads of angels. That's multiplication. John saw 10,000 times 10,000. You know how many that is? Can you get your zeros in place? That's 100 million angels. 100 million soaring, singing seraphs. Thousands upon thousands. And add to that that these seraphs are sinless. Though they have a creator, they have no need of a redeemer. And yet they sing to him. What do they sing? Verse 12 tells us, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
Now, seven distinct accolades. You see them there? Verse 12. Now, this, this truly is worship. You know how we know? Here's how we know. Because our culture makes gods out of all seven of these. What's the American dream? Power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. John may as well have wrote in 1 John 5.21, Americans, guard yourselves from these idols. And notice, the realities aren't wrong in and of themselves. But when we seek to realize them by unworthy means, that's idolatry. The pursuit of power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, and glory, and blessing in things like career or skill sets or education or finances or family, relationships, even ministry is idolatry. Each of these are great gifts, but they're lousy gods, aren't they? As objects of worship, they are unworthy. But 100 million angels tell us Who is worthy of these tributes? The Lamb who was slain. Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, reigning, and soon to return. He alone is worthy of our worship. The word Lamb appears 39 times in the New Testament. A full 29 of those occurrences, nearly 75% of them, are here in the book of Revelation. Now, Jesus is God. He's Lord. He's King of Kings. He's Teacher. He's Son of Man. And yet, it's this focus, isn't it, as Jesus, as the Lamb who was slain, that receives a relentless testimony in the book of Revelation, especially in the hymns of Revelation. Author Jim Eliff observes, one is taken aback by the emphasis on the cross in Revelation. Heaven does not get over the cross as if there are better things to think about. Heaven is not only Christ-centered, but cross-centered and quite blaring about it. One of my favorite sentences in Christian literature, uh, David Pryor writes, we never move on from the cross only into a more profound understanding of the cross. How about you this Advent season? Are you moving into a more profound understanding of the cross? The Son of God became man 2,000 years ago. He became incarnate. He took on flesh, and he did that so that there would be flesh that could be nailed to a wooden cross Flesh that would die, flesh that would be raised on the third day, and flesh which we will see soon. His second advent is coming. Do you know him? To know him is to adore him. Worship is the worthiest response in the world to the worth of Jesus Christ. So this advent season, come, let us adore him, for he alone is worthy. Second point today. This Advent season, come, let us adorn him. 
For we are called to live worthy. Adorn, A-D-O-R-N. Come, let us adorn him. For we are called to live worthy. This second point of application follows naturally from the first. If point one is about extolling Christ, then point two is about experiencing Christ. Point one relates to applauding the cross. Point two relates to applying the cross. Put it another way, point one's focus is a, a lauding sacrifice of worship. Point two is a a living sacrifice of worship. After 11 chapters of unfolding the gospel of grace in Romans, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Sometimes your English translation might have the phrase rational service. That's a good way to translate it. In other words, all of life as worship only makes sense in view of the worth of Christ, the mercies of God toward us in Christ. So while we want to adore him, we also want to adorn him. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, first of all, recognize that it is biblical. Uh, Titus 2.10 calls us to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Adorn the doctrine. Literally, do credit to. Another way to say it is that we are called to live worthy of the gospel. Now, if this were not the unrelenting witness of the New Testament, I wouldn't be surprised if someone cried heresy in this moment. Seriously, because on the one hand, let's be crystal clear. Uh, Revelation 5.2 asks the question, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And verse 3 tells us without any ambiguity, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John records his reaction in in Revelation 5-4 when he says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. We are not worthy. And yet the New Testament is replete with repeated summons to live worthy of the gospel. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Philippians 1.27, only let, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Colossians 1.10, Paul says, we're, we're praying for you, that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. And 1 Thessalonians 2.12, we exhorted each one of you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. Well, it's certainly biblical. The only question left is, what does it mean? Does it mean that we are to become worthy of God's favor, somehow deserving or meriting, earning the grace of God. Perish the thought. Not in a zillion years. Well, what does it mean? 
One preacher I appreciate said it this way. These, these texts about being worthy aren't about what we merit from God, but rather what God merits of us. Or Isaac Watts put it this way nearly 300 years ago. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. The word worthy is used repeatedly in the New Testament to mean fitting, appropriate, or suitable. So when John the Baptist saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for his baptism, he fired a shot across the bow to them in Matthew 3.8 when he said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay, that, that phrase, in keeping with, that's the word that John uses for worthy here in Revelation 4 and 5. And so when the New Testament calls us to live worthy of the gospel, it's not saying that salvation is our due reward, but rather instead that our very lives are God's due reward. He bought us with a price. Glorify God by living worthy of that purchase. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ, not from works, therefore no boasting. At the same time, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ for good works, therefore no coasting. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. I think especially this reminds me of what it means to be prepared for the second advent of Jesus. In, in being prepared for the first advent of Jesus, what we want to look back on is see what he accomplished for us. In the second advent of Jesus, we will find out what he accomplished through us. Living life worthy of the gospel, adorning the gospel, quote from J.C. Ryle. Sanctification is an absolute necessity in order to train and prepare us for heaven. Heaven is a holy place. Its inhabitants are all holy. Its occupations are all holy. To be really happy in heaven, it's clear and plain that we must somewhat be trained and made ready for heaven while here on the earth. And he finishes his statement with this striking picture. What could an unsanctified man do in heaven if he got there? When an eagle is happy in an iron cage, when a sheep is happy in the water, when an owl is happy in the blaze of noonday sun, when a fish is happy on dry land, then, and only then, will I admit that the unsanctified man could be happy in heaven. What is worship about? Well, on the one hand, it's about adoring him. He alone is worthy. Enjoying him, singing his praises, amen. But it's also about adorning him, isn't it? With all of our lives, living worthy of the calling that we have received. We've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, therefore no boasting. We've been saved by grace through faith in Christ for good works, therefore no coasting. 
Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, John says, and so does Paul, will bow a knee and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us adorn him, for we are called to live worthy. Worship is the worthiest response in the world to the worth of Jesus Christ. So this Advent season, let's adore him. Let's adorn him. Next week, Guy Runkel will preach a message about peacemaking drawn from one of the richest parables in the New Testament from our Lord in Matthew chapter 18. Uh, Don't forget that we gather here in this sanctuary as a congregation 4 p.m. this Wednesday for Christmas Eve, time of worship and song and worship over the word. I hope you make plans to join us. Right now, let's pray. Father in heaven, the heart of worship, right down to the roots, is is who we are. It's our conduct before you. We freely confess that the ground of our acceptance before you, before a holy God, is, is nothing in ourselves. You alone are worthy, Lord Jesus. And yet I, I pray that we would see as a congregation how that word worthy is picked up in the broader usage of the New Testament. That we not only are to sing of your worth, but the way that we display that worth, the way that we demonstrate that worth is by living lives worthy of the gospel. So come, this new season in our church, season of winter begins today, this Advent season as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, a brand new year. Lord, grant that we would not only adore you in a fresh way, but that you would so create in our hearts a desire for holiness, a desire for obedience, that we live worthy of the gospel that we proclaim. I pray, Father, that if there are any within the sound of my voice that don't have a saving relationship with you by grace through faith in Jesus, I pray that they would see that that nothing in their hand they need bring, simply to the cross they cling. And yet love so amazing, so divine, demands our life, our soul, our all. Lord, as you transfer us to safety, safety from the wrath of God, safety from the judgment to come, would you increasingly transform us into saints. In Jesus' name, amen.